How much NIL is happening, and it's not name, image, and likeness, it's now it's legal. And so just like when you walk around New York City, I smell marijuana, I smell weed everywhere when I'm walking the streets in New York. And I always ask myself, how many people that are smoking weed right now bought it in a dispensary and paid taxes on it? How many bought it under the table down the street, but they just feel good about smoking it out in the open now because, hey, now it's legal. That's NIL. We've lost the story of the young man who shows up on campus as a freshman expecting to play. Him and coach just don't see eye to eye and coach doesn't play him at all. Calls his coach from high school, coach, I, I just don't wanna be here. And his coach says, stick it out. You're gonna learn from this, stick it out. And he sticks it out. And the next year he buys into what the coach wanted him to do. And he gets a little bit of reps and proves he can handle being in the moment in front of 90,000 people. And then the next year, spring football, he crushes it. He earns a starting spot. His junior year, he's starting. His senior year, he goes all conference. And he's sitting up at the banquet, crying like a baby, saying, I was gonna quit. We've lost that. To give folks a picture of the magnitude of the house case, there's as much as $4.2 billion in damages for those athletes not being compensated for their name, image, and likeness being a part of media broadcasts, okay? so that's the magnitude of this. That would break the NCAA. What are you seeing happen right now with NIL and you know what what's wrong with it? Welcome into the Next Up Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Brenneman. We got a great episode for you today. It's with my man, Jim Caval, one of the leaders, one of the faces of the new age of college football. Jim was the founder of Influencer, which sold to Teamworks in a huge deal. Influencer was one of the most prominent apps and still is in college sports for current college athletes, helping college athletes build their brand. Now, Jim's the founder of Athletes.org and doing some innovative things in the college sports and NIL space. I'll let you guys hear from him directly about what he's doing, what he's advocating for. But I'll tell you one thing, there is no one better to hear about the future of college sports from, to hear the insight behind what's really happening in NIL, college athletics, negotiations in the transfer portal, what it's really like behind the curtains of college sports in 2023 and 2024. Jim Caval is the guy you want to listen to. Before we get to the pod, please subscribe. Last time I checked, only about 50% of you who watch every episode actually subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're on audio, Spotify, or Apple, please make sure to rate, to share this, to subscribe, depending on what app you're on. All your support allows me to go around the country and have on amazing guests in college football and college sports, just like Jim Caval. And as always, please support our sponsors. Those sponsors that you see on this podcast allow me to put out the content and have the team to do it. So appreciate their support. Appreciate all your support. Let's go talk to Jim Caval. Next up. What's up, guys? It's Adam Brenneman. It's now holiday season. You guys are looking for gifts. I'm telling you right now, check out our merch store. We have super high-quality merch. My favorite is this college football tee. If you're a college football fan, you need this thing. We have college basketball tees, tons of merch for college sports fans. Use the code ADAMB15 for 15% off at checkout. Go get some college football merch and check out our other styles today. Well, I appreciate you doing this, man. I'm excited to uh, want to have you on for a long time. We've been trying to make this happen. I appreciate you. Uh, had a great day at UAB yesterday with Coach Dilfer and... Uh, Jacob Zeno, so I appreciate you setting all that up. Absolutely, man. It's exciting what they're building, and uh, Coach Dilfer is is one of one. He's a really unique leader in the space, so it's yeah. awesome you got to spend time. My first time in Birmingham, too. This place is I know. It's a nice place. I tell everyone uh, when when they come here, they're so surprised that there's so many hills and it's uh, got an actual city, but there's a yeah. lot to do and it's got great food and we love raising our family here. Yeah, no, it's a good place. It's, it's been been cool to see the downtown. I have di- have dinner last night. 
so much I want to talk to you about. You've had an, an awesome career in entrepreneurship and in sports, and now really at the forefront of the changing dynamic of college athletics. And, and your name is, you know, when people think of NIL and college sports today, your name is right in the middle of it as some of the you know, top uh, power brokers, if you will, in the sport, in the sport of college football uh, and other sports. I want to start with this. What's something, looking back on your journey, on your career, whether it's as a baseball player, whether it's your entrepreneurship career, what's a pivotal moment that has shaped who you are right now with what you're attacking right now? Man, there's so many uh, ways I could go with, with that question. I think that being a dreamer and my initial dreams being in sports, being in baseball, you know, after playing basketball and baseball in high school, having some success, being all state, I didn't get the offers from schools down south like I wanted to, to play college baseball. And taking a chance and going a thousand miles from home to play Division II baseball at the University of Montevallo in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, really was a pivotal moment for me because um, it forced me to believe in myself. It showed me how much my parents and my family believed in me. Um, and it also forced me to rely on myself once I got down here because I knew nobody yeah. and it really felt like a different world. It was culture shock. Um, but that whole experience really made me believe what my dad always told me, which is every room is better when you're in it. And being confident in that way has really shaped every part of my life. Yeah. That's awesome. And then you haven't left this area since, right? No. Been here the whole time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I used to come up to Birmingham a lot. Uh, Montevallo is about 30 miles away. Um, and I always was like, wow, this is a really cool city. And great food. I always go to different restaurants. Love the people. Near Atlanta, near Nashville. Good location, near the beach. Um, and so when I got out of college, started working on my first business, I was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to go back to New York. I think I'm going to stay down here and not just build a company, but build a life and maybe even help build a city. So you just mentioned your first business. Was that the Next Specs business? Yeah. So um, I was reading about your story and I've heard a lot about it. That was your first foray kind of into sports, right? As an entrepreneur. Tell, tell me about that business, how it started and, and uh, the kind of backstory there. Well, I wanted to be a broadcaster. I, went oh, to, really? I was a broadcast journalism major at the University of Montevallo, you know, and um, I had a TV show on campus. I shot everything, I edited everything, I had my, my Apple computer back when nobody had that, <laughs> early 2000s, everybody made fun of me for having an Apple back then. Um, and I would shoot myself doing shows, go edit it in my room, and I really fell in love with broadcast in general. So knowing that there's this very uh, tough path a lot of broadcasters take where they have to go to a small market, make 20 grand a year and kind of work their way up, and it's a very competitive industry, I wanted to find a way to kind of do it, but do it in addition to building a company and find a way where it could be complementary. And Comcast Sportsnet did a contract with me to basically do their small college game of the week every Thursday night. And so I was a sideline broadcaster uh, with Bob Valvano, if you remember Jim Valvano, his brother, and, um, and, and we would go around and do these games live TV on Thursday nights, and I started then doing a lot of reporting packages for Comcast Sportsnet, and they're out of Atlanta, so they're close by. I did Nick Saban's first ever one-on-one -on -one interview when he got hired by Alabama. <laughs> Hidden fact, you can find it on YouTube, probably. Um, but, you know, as I was doing that, it just made sense to build a business helping the coaches I was around in college sports and the athletes at the high school level connect more efficiently, because 
in 2005, athletes were still sending DVDs to coaches. And they were also, some of them were sending VHS tapes, which some of your viewers might not remember. I was sending DVDs in 2011 when I was recruiting high school. So what we did was we said, listen, there's this new thing called video streaming. Let's allow athletes to upload their content. We'll, We'll help them convert a DVD to a quick time video that is, and it's packaged up with a transcript of theirs from their, their high school academics, and then they can email it out yeah. to coaches. And so we had this SaaS business where we made money from selling to high schools where they would provide this technology to their student athletes and selling to colleges the ability for their coaches to access our database. And that's what NextSpecs was and uh, made a ton of mistakes, but created enough value where we were able to have an exit in 2010 after five years of building it. And uh, I just learned so much. And I don't want to denounce getting an MBA because I don't have mine. So I don't know both yeah. MBA and on the job. Usually people ask what's better. I don't know the answer. But what I do know is I got a lot out of building a business from 22 to 27 and running my head against the wall and making mistakes. Yeah. Uh, well, I have an MBA and I don't think I've used it one time in <laughs> anything I've done. So I'll help you with that sentiment. Um, and then... After that exit came Iron Tribe Fitness, right? The, the gyms you started. Uh, what, what was something you learned during that time that now you've taken with you to, uh, to this point today? Yeah, so, you know, Iron Tribe was a very fortuitous opportunity. I planned on staying in sports, um, was even considering staying on with NextSpecs um, as an employee for uh, our acquirer. But I was in a position where I was working out doing CrossFit, and this is 2009. CrossFit's new. I was doing it in a garage in my neighborhood. And the guy I was doing it with was um, ready to open up a gym called Iron Tribe, doing these same type of workouts. But it's a legitimate business, you know, full-time staff, trainers, keeping people safe, you know, really excellent in his process because he already had been in fitness and built a 55-unit chain in the personal training space. So he knew what he was doing. So I became a member of his first gym in 2010. And I was just drinking the Kool-Aid. I was like, you know, in the best shape of my life. Um, I love the brand and what it stood for. And so I approached him with this idea of launching the second gym on another side of Birmingham and maybe partnering to do more gyms after that. And uh, he bought into it. And I happened to be available at the time because I was exiting Nexpex. And so for the next almost seven years, we built Iron Tribe, first to four gyms in Birmingham. Then we co-founded Iron Tribe Franchise to help people buy markets like Austin, Houston, Kansas City, Nashville, Miami, Atlanta, et cetera. And uh, we just started spreading the gyms all over the Southeast and it was a lot of fun because we were changing lives and Iron Tribe still is changing lives today, which is really cool to still watch. Um, But for me, it uh, it was a growing opportunity because he was and still is, you know, a little bit older than me and had already had success that I hadn't had yet, had already built a family. Um, He was a man of faith, which I respected tremendously, how he lived that out. He taught me how to give back. You know, our business raised millions for um, Neverthirst, which brings clean water to remote countries that that don't have it. So it was just really cool what I learned working alongside him as a business partner at Iron Tribe. And then your next business was, you know, when I first heard of you, your your name was Influencer. Uh, And it started as an 
a way for athletes to get the content that all their creative departments at football programs, basketball programs were creating already and, and could uh, had the software to now get it to the players. You were telling me last night a little bit of the story of how you started Influencer and your drive from Birmingham to Syracuse, right? Can you tell us that story of how, how it got off the ground and, uh, and how it became the success that, that you ended up exiting? Well, if, if you back up, when we opened our second Iron Tribe gym, um, it's in this area of Birmingham we call 280, it's a US, inter, uh, US uh, highway and it's in East Birmingham. And uh, it happened to be near um, Greg Sankey's house, so he became one of the members of our gyms. And uh, that's where I first met Greg, and like me, he's from Syracuse, and we're both in Birmingham, because the SEC's based here, and um, we had that connection. And so uh, I took him to coffee, and, and we got to know each other a little bit, and uh, it was the first time I ever heard about the Ed O'Bannon case. Yeah. And so this is early 2010s, I'm still building Iron Tribe, but I started studying that case. There's a movie that uh, ESPN 30 for 30 did called Soul Man, uh, S-O-L-E. It's about Sonny Vaccaro and his whole story of going with O'Bannon to beat the NCAA. Um, and there was a lot of other data points for me that kind of made me think, this is next, and it's gonna really disrupt college sports. And so by 2016, Iron Tribe was at about 47 gyms. Um, I went to my partner, I said, hey, would you buy me out? I really want to work on something in the college athletic space. To be honest, a little bit of uh, ego pride played into it because I considered next specs a loss. Um, you know, I, I, I learned a lot, but there were a lot of things I would have done differently. And I kind of wanted to avenge that. You know, the competitor in me was like, I want to go back into college sports. I want to do something that's valuable for the market. This is going to be a problem. There's a lot of solutions I can bring to it. The issue that I had was if I, if I got that buyout from Forrest Walden, my partner at Iron Tribe, I didn't really exactly know what I was going to do because NIL hadn't happened yet. O'Bannon had won. The writing was on the wall, but who knew what the timing was going to look like? But I knew being first and building trust with college athletic departments and their athletes would put me in a position to help with NIL whenever it did come about. And I knew that from having a lot of conversations, from traveling around like I did from Birmingham to Syracuse on that spring break trip that I'll tell you about, I learned that content was something that schools and coaches had a desire to deliver to their athletes. And they were shooting boatloads of it. But their athletes didn't have an efficient way to get it. And the schools didn't have an efficient way to track where that content was going, whether they shared it to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So I was like, you know what? Let me build a business it's technology that we sell to college athletic departments and pro teams, and they buy it for their athletes to be better on social, to build their brand. And the main feature will be content delivery, content shot by the team, content shot by the media, in the hands of the athlete. So I sketched it all out, and I spent about $15,000 of my money to build a website, came up with the name Influencer, uh, used 99 designs to make a logo <laughs> for 500 bucks. <laughs> You know what I mean? And even though I had made some money on Iron Tribe, I wasn't all of a sudden super wealthy and going to just blow a bunch of money. I'd met Gary V during that time. And one thing he said to me was, if you build something in sports, you should be able to get somebody to write you a check before you build out the product because you don't want to take a risk assuming you know what they need. And so we built a prototype of what influencer could look like in this core feature set of content delivery for athletes. And my daughter was 16 at the time. It was her spring break, March 2017. I said, Savannah, you want to get in the car for your spring break and we'll do a road trip. 
And to her credit, she's always loved what I do, watching me as an entrepreneur. She loves sports, even though she didn't play it much. She got in the car with me. We drove to Nashville and met with Vanderbilt, we, about two and a half hours from Birmingham. We drove from uh, Nashville to Lexington. We met with UK. We even got to meet with um, the basketball staff uh, who really showed us how much these athletes were desiring content and were really interested in what we were doing. We then drove from Lexington to Columbus and visited with Ohio State football. I even got to go into a meeting, uh, a team meeting where Urban Meyer was, was still coaching and it was really, really interesting stuff. Passionate guy. Passionate guy, very passionate guy. And then we went from Columbus up to Syracuse, my hometown, and got a chance to meet with um, some of their ADs and talk about this. And uh, sales cycle was about three months, but a couple of those schools, including Kentucky, signed a contract to pay us recurring fees on a multi-year basis for our software. And I hadn't built it yet. So now I'm calling the guys who designed the prototype and I said, we gotta build this, how much is it gonna cost? Um, we got South Carolina, UAB, Auburn, uh, Troy, all to come on board. And we had about six figures of annual recurring revenue under contract before we even launched the product, which was strong. It allowed me to hire a team. It allowed me to feel better about putting some of my own money in and getting this thing off the ground. But, uh, but that trip was, was huge because it really showed me this was a problem that was worth solving. Well, what was the moment during that journey with Influencer where, you, where something clicked, where you were like, man, this isn't just gonna be some, this is gonna become a major business and a major player in college sports? Yeah, so we built Influencer very grassroots and social media for us was a big part of building it. We would go and I would speak to teams um, it, 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 all the different schools, big time schools like Penn State football, James Franklin would bring me in, um, you know, but also I'd go speak at, at smaller schools like Troy and no matter what school, what sport, I'd have lines of athletes up wanting to talk to me after I spoke. And don't get me wrong, I tried to live a, deliver a powerful speech and, and, and talk about using the stage of college sports to set the stage for the rest of your life and why it matters to share content to social and tell your story. And I would use examples and they would want to come up and just talk about, hey man, I want to, I want to have gyms one day. You know, Cam Brown, he was playing at Penn State at the time, now he's on the Giants. Yeah. I want to have gyms one day. I saw you built gyms and like, how could I be using social while I'm still at Penn State yeah. to build a personal training business that I can have when I'm done playing, whatever that is, right? And like all these kind of conversations with men and women playing all these different sports. Yeah. And, and that showed me that there is a, a movement that college coaches wanna be able to sell in recruiting, which is we're gonna help you off the court, off the field. Yeah. And digital has become the center of how you're gonna help them do that. And influencer was the mechanism and medium for that to occur. And so coaches, when they did have me come in, it clicked for them. Yeah. And they wanted to keep a relationship. And then while all that's going on, Influencer grows, first two years, you know, more than 50 schools, you know, seven figures of annual recurring revenue. We built a team of a dozen people. Um, you know, we're really starting to build a real business. And then the California Fair Pay to Play Act drops, which says, NIL is going to be legal for California student athletes starting in 2023. And that was the beginning of everybody scrambling around NIL. And it was the beginning of me seeing we built a feature set to help athletes with their brands. Now we can invest in a feature set to help them manage their NIL business. Yeah. And then what, 
what was the exact part of Influencer that helped with NIL? It was, you guys were essentially a marketplace, right? I mean, it still is a marketplace for NIL deals. Is that, was that the exact business? Well, you know, we had a choice to make fundamentally yeah. on whether we were going to build a marketplace that brought in brands and then brokered deals for athletes through technology and then took a, a fee out of the yeah. deal like an agent does. Um, and as we talked about it more and more, we were like, you know, I don't think these deals are gonna be very big. And I don't think most athletes are gonna make a lot of money. And I don't know that we wanna be in the middle of that. Yeah. I think instead, let's build some more features and tech for the school to buy and have their own, not marketplace, but we call it an exchange. Sure, yeah. And so no matter who is paying the athletes, it could be in a collective, it could be a fan, it could be a brand. The athlete uses influencer like Venmo to take the yeah. payment. No vig or percentage is taken off of it because the school pays us for that additional software and it aggregates all the data for the school to see what's happening with nil for compliance but also influencer issues the 1099 no matter how many different deals you did from how many different people you don't have to collect all those 1099s you get one from influencer to do your taxes and we brought in turbo tax as a partner so you can do your taxes for free but if you back up you know it's 2019 california passes the fair pay to play act um Teamworks is now the de facto tech partner of every major college. They're in most pro teams in the NBA, NFL, MLS, MLB. They're abroad in the English Premier League, La Liga, but they have one product. They're doing communications between team and athlete and scheduling between team and athlete. But they know that they have this core product that can be built on with a suite of apps, kind of like Gmail is the core product we all use. It's where our account is. But if you go to the keyboard pad up in the uh, logo in the upper right of your, your Gmail, you click on it, there's all the other apps, right? From Waze to YouTube to Google Apps and, and in between, right? Teamworks came to me with that same vision. They were like, listen, we're raising a Series C, $27 million. We're already venture backed. We want to start acquiring companies. We think you're the best in brand building and social media for athletes. But we also think you're positioned to win with NIL. And so we'd like to acquire Influencer. This is 2019 and they're asking me to stay on board for four years and they're saying basically this portion of the deal is cash, this portion of the deal is stock, stock's tied to you continuing to be CEO of Influencer for four years and then you'll own a, a nice piece of Teamworks. Um, we want to go public, we want to be a multi-billion dollar SaaS brand, you're the first of many acquisitions and I told you at breakfast, you know, if I was 27, I might have said no. You know, but I was 37 and I'm like, man, this is great. I can de-risk this. I had some seed investors. I get them paid. They can ride along and invest in Teamworks if they want to stay with me. Um, I get cash that's going to change my family's lives, but also stock that could be, you know, monumental for my family's future. And, you know, all my employees win with their stock options and I've got capital and I've got infrastructure behind me now to build for NIL. And so I did it and it was a great decision. They let me run and be the entrepreneur that I am. Everybody told me from my wife to my dad to friends, you'll never make it four years. You're unemployable. Um, You're an entrepreneur and founder only. Zach Marides was awesome. He's a founder. He's an operator. He totally put the people around me to win. And, um, And we did. We built for NIL. We built the exchange to be the back office for all the NIL deals and uh, schools added it and it increased the average spend from the school with us. It took us to an eight figure annual recurring revenue business 
and, uh, and, and helped us be a winner in the Teamworks umbrella that's become pretty big. Before we talk about athletes.org and all the landscape of college, football, college athletics, when you sign the final paperwork to sell Influencer, when the wire hit your bank account, when that moment happened, what was going through your mind? You guys know I love football. In this football season, I've been trying to find a new way to bet on sports. I'm sick of using casinos, the traditional way to do it. And I found the best way to do it, had to tell you guys about it. It's on Cut. Cut is the game-changing social betting platform. Look no further. This is where you got to be. It's a peer-to-peer betting playground. On Cut, you can bet against your friends, bet against fellow fans on sports, politics, pop culture, and much more. It's much better than just regular sports books. Cut handles payments, so no more chasing friends for money, no more talking to a bookie, hassle-free betting at its finest. And the best part, no more faceless casinos. It's personal and it's exciting. You can customize odds for what you want to bet on. Tailor your bets with fully customizable odds. It's your game in your rules on cut. Also, we get lower VIG on cut. Much lower VIG for a better betting experience for everybody, more winnings and less hassle. One of my favorite parts of cut is the social features. You can dive into group chats, betting leaderboards, head-to-head history and user profiles. It's like having a group of friends on a betting platform and betting against them if you want. Your betting experience just got a major upgrade when you use cut. I didn't even mention that the rewards that you get on the cut app. You get cash back every time you bet against your friends. The more you bet, the more you earn. It is a win-win for everyone. Cut is legal in 40 plus states, which I love because I'm traveling so much. It's hard to find sports books that are legal in most states. 40 plus states for cut, including those without traditional sports books. So put your money where your mouth is. It's time to fire on sports on the best new app. I've been looking for a long time and I found it. It's on cut. Use my promo code Adam B and get a 10% deposit match at cut.com. That's cut.com. K-U-T-T.com. Use my code Adam B for a 10% deposit match when you deposit money. Again, cut.com. K-U-T-T. Get a 10% deposit match when you use my code Adam B. And guys, supporting our sponsors helps us so much helps me personally be able to travel around the country and bring on amazing guests so go support cut today when you sign the final paperwork to sell influencer when the wire hit your bank account when that moment happened what was going through your mind first of all you gotta uh i gotta i'll send you a picture um you know you're working on these deals right and it's like we can get this done in three months you know in two months and you're estimating timelines and you're already starting to work together but you're not officially signed and you got lawyers dealing with all kinds of dynamics right and it just happened that I was down at Miami for the Miami-Virginia Tech game, visiting with Coach Diaz and the team, speaking to the team. This is the DJ Dallas, uh, you know, KJ Osborne years. Those are still my guys. Shout out to them. Love those guys. And, uh, and, and, but I'm in Miami. I brought my boys with me on that trip because it was Miami. And we're at the Fountain Blue. And the fax comes through. <laughs> so I'm signing the paperwork with the cigar in my mouth on the window of the Fountain Blue Hotel room. You can see the pool down below. It was like a movie. And uh, I was so excited. Um, but, you know, when the money hit the bank account, it was more about, okay, how do I, you know, do all the responsible things? You know, any debt I have, I don't have any debt anymore. I'm debt free. How do I make sure my family and my kids are set up, not just for college, but if something ever happens to me? Um, how do I make sure my wife's business is funded properly um, so that she can be successful? Yeah. You know, all those kinds of things are what you think about first. Then you're thinking about where am I going to invest my money? What am I going to do with that strategy? And then you're thinking about the reality, which is the majority of my net worth is still tied up now in this new company. Yeah. And how do I make it great? Yeah. And how do I be a team player and not be an entrepreneur off on an island? but a guy working with everyone. Cause now I'm part of a team with a hundred people and I'm not the CEO of that whole team. I'm the CEO of this team within that team. Yeah. 
and I got to be a team player. And so it was, a, you know, it was a really cool transition for me, not being 40 yet, but getting ready to go into my, my 40s, like to think about life a little differently and be a little bit more of a grown up. Yeah, that's awesome. What's the first thing you bought? Tesla. The, the, what we just drove yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. Suite. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. Zach was like, "There's two. You can do whatever you want with your money, but there's two uh, two parameters you got to do. You're a tech CEO, so you got to buy a Tesla." And and then he sold me on on investing into Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> you probably made out pretty well on that. Though. I did. Yeah. I did. I did. I I, uh, I I didn't have the appetite to stay in for the long haul, which is really how you should do it. But I got lucky. I got in when it was pretty low, and I sold right before it kind of took a dip. And, um, and yeah, I thank Zach for those two purchases. Yeah. Um, so let's get to right now, uh, athletes.org. We're, we're in your headquarters right here in Birmingham. Uh, you started athletes.org. What's the mission behind it and how do you see it changing college athletics forever? I think big, big picture, we impact athletes to impact the world. Athletes are the leaders of our society, whether it's uh, the fact that 90% of female CEOs played college sports or any other stat you want to go dig up or uh, about, about leaders in business and leaders in politics all playing at least high school sports or just looking at stories from Jesse Owens to Muhammad Ali to what athletes are doing now today off the court to push change, LeBron. Um, so like if you help athletes and you maximize their potential which college athletics departments all have a mission that relates to maximizing the potential of their athletes, right? Yeah. Like all of them, that's what they say, okay? So if you do that, if that's the business we're all in, whether I've got a business separate from college athletic departments or you are an AD or president, then when you're impacting athletes and maximizing their potential, you're literally making the world better, right? And so that's where it starts. Now, for us, we said, Listen, just like O'Bannon was writing on the wall for NIL, and in 2019, when I had dozens of schools already paying me for our SaaS software product to help athletes with social, but I couldn't even bring up NIL publicly with them because of liability, we're in the same situation now where House and Johnson versus the NCAA, the National Labor Relations Board cases that really took center stage this week yeah. in California, are all writing on the wall for revenue sharing from yeah. gross revenue that the yeah. schools produce with at least certain athletes, if not all. It's writing on the wall. And just like they wouldn't talk to me about NIL publicly back in 2019, and NIL started two years later, most of them won't talk to me publicly right now about this, unless they're coaches like Chip Kelly yeah. or Harbaugh, yeah. they'll talk about yeah. it. But ADs and and, uh, and, and commissioners being advised by their general counsel, don't talk about it, but it's gonna happen. And so based on that, you have to have a situation where a deal can be done between college athletes and college athletics leaders at the school conference or NCAA level to revenue share. And in that deal, you should also address the transformation categories such as medical coverage, mental health resources, concussion protocols, field surface, NIL resources on campus. It's all in the transformation report the NCAA wrote and put out under Julie Cromer and Greg Sankey, who are the chairs of that committee at the beginning of this calendar year. But how do you standardize those standards across different sports and leagues? How do you standardize revenue sharing? You have to have a group of athletes to do that that negotiates that deal, whether it's 
a union and athletes are employees yeah. and it's collective bargaining, which we're not at yet because yeah. athletes aren't employees yet. Or whether it's the current situation where athletes aren't employees and it's an association that's not a union that negotiates those standards. One way or another, that has to be done. And so we said, just like the NFLPA provides great benefits and support for its athletes in the NFL, and they also collectively bargain a deal based on the voice of those athletes with the NFL League. And just like they have NFL Players Inc., that brings group licensing revenue for the Madden game and the Panini trading card deal and the Fanatics jersey deal, we're gonna build the same business in college. Athletes.org provides three things. We maximize the income of our member athletes. We amplify their voice to push change in college athletics and set these standards. And we support them in the key decisions they now have to make that you and I didn't deal with when we played college sports, right? Like we call these young men and women, kids, but they're becoming adults and professionals way earlier than we did, and they're more sophisticated than many people know, and they need support in making these crazy decisions, transferring, taking an NIL deal from a collective, knowing they're gonna get paid or not, doing their taxes, managing their money. We help with all that. So income, voice, support. Athletes.org delivers those things to accomplish our mission of impacting athletes to impact the world. When you started on this mission, I remember there was so much positive hype at first about it. And then there was, you know, maybe some opposition from traditional leaders in college athletics who have gotten us in this point today. Yeah. And you've seen some of it, right? What's it been like to kind of see some people that might have supported you when you were at Influencer, but now you're doing this and all of a sudden they want nothing to do with it? Yeah. So it's way more political than I imagined. And it's funny because a lot of people including our mayor here in Birmingham, who I, I was a small part of helping him get elected. A lot of people are like, Jim, you should get into politics. You know, like you'd be great as a, as a mayor, or a, you know, whatever. I, I've always said I would never do it, right? Yeah. And here I am, and it's more political in some cases than what, what they do running a city. Um, in politics, it's tough to be in the middle, right? You've seen this with any centrist. And what's weird is there's a lot of centrists like me out there that want somebody in the middle but what happens is both sides come at you. I launched and I was standing in the middle. I had just worked with a few hundred schools. I had relationships with ADs, with coaches, multi-year contracts. I've been working with them for over a half a dozen years, right? And, uh, and then on the other side, I care so much about this mission to impact athletes, to impact the world. And I'm building essentially a players association for college athletes, right? So the athletes are on one side and the college athletics leaders are on the other side and I'm in the middle and it was like a vice. Yeah. It was like a vice. For the first month, it was like, the, the second we launched in New York, I saw a good friend and went up to him like I always would because I've known him for a while. I said, hello. And I see him at the airport, I'm about to fly home. And he's like, we, we can't talk anymore. And I'm like, what? And then I'm getting texts from other leaders that are saying, this is our only chance. I love what you're doing. We've got to figure out how to do a deal before the courts force the wrong deal upon us. Yeah. And in reality, all I'm doing is taking a proven model from pro sports, getting it funded, taking risk with several million dollars, building a team, and literally living up to my promise to athletes out the gate because we're already bringing them income. We're already doing polls and giving them a voice with the media. We're already providing them with support in an array of manners, legally, accounting, a registry for collectives and agents. I'm doing everything that all of these folks are ideating about. Yeah. You know, I got a, a chance to talk to Charlie Baker and um, you know, 
that conversation is confidential for the most part, but the one thing I, I feel comfortable sharing about that conversation is that, you know, I, I said to him, I said, you know, Charlie, a lot of people are talking about what we could and should do behind closed doors in working groups and committees. I'm out here executing. Yeah. We're, we're out, me and Brandon Copeland, my partner, we're entrepreneurs, we're founders, and we're gonna figure this out as we go because we don't have all the answers. Yeah but we're gonna be flexible with the market, we are going to organize athletes, and we are gonna be the group that helps negotiate the new deal, which is what we call it for college athletics. Well, during the, the last few months, what was maybe the most frustrating point for you when, when you launched? Was there a time where you were like, man, that, it's frustrating to see that person not be on our side? And then kind of how did how'd you overcome it? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't get frustrated, I got motivated. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, a line from Arnold Schwarzenegger whose biography, Total Recall, is unbelievable. Everybody should read it, whether you like Arnold or not. But you've gotta be so good they can't say no. Yeah. And balancing that with advice from Zach Marides early on when I was just getting influencer going, which is, Jim, there's gonna be early adopters who get what you're doing, they're gonna pay for it. But there's a book called Crossing the Chasm and it's gonna show you the route of finding early adopters, but then getting the laggards down the line. Yeah. There's a lot of laggards lot here. Of and I have empathy for them. They have legal liabilities. There's several court cases that if they say the wrong thing, they could be deposed or subpoenaed. They do really not, they, they don't really control this. They're not really, commissioners and ADs are not really the leaders here. And I have empathy for them in that. The leaders are the presidents and the board of trustees yeah. who they report to. And so I don't want to assume that I fully understand all of these leaders' situations, but they need us, yeah. athletes.org, and our team to organize athletes yeah. so that the new deal of the future can be negotiated and figured out. We could all win. This is a, a true, one of our core values at athletes.org is win, 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 win cubed. This is a win-win-win if we all get in a room and start talking about it. We saw this this past summer with the, with the strike, with, yeah. the, with the Writers Guild and, and SAG, because only one studio was talking to them. Mm -hmm. I would equate studios to conferences. Yeah. We need all the major conferences to talk to their athletes with all the right parties in the room. We could figure this out, and we can still fund Title IX, and we can still fund the Olympic sports. And we, we can figure this out, but we've got to start working on it. Yeah. And that's the key. And so um, be so good, they can't say no. And empathy for the laggards versus the early adopters has really been my fuel to just be really cool and say, hey, listen, we're just going to keep building. We're going to prove out that we maximize income, prove out that we amplify voice, prove out that we support key decisions. We're going to sign up our chapters of athletes and have success doing it. And when they're ready, they'll talk. We, we were talking earlier about that 99% of commissioners or influential people in the sport agree that revenue sharing is going to happen, but none of them can publicly say that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I was fortunate to really get our organization built out fast. Yeah. You know, um, when I say our organization, I mean it, our team. We have about yeah. 10 people on our team. And Brandon Copeland's my partner. Yeah. Uh, he played 10 years in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, he's an absolute beast, literally, but also as a businessman. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Cope uh, went to Penn, super sharp, made 
a lot of big moves off the field during his 10-year career and uh, was the perfect guy to partner with on this. And he's the executive director and CEO of athletes.org. I'm the chairman of the board. Um, and he's been great. We built a great team around him. Dave Sethi from Instagram Sports um, is our COO. Shaq Rashad, who is our top, one of our top sales guys um, during my time at Teamworks, played at North Carolina, is on the team. Uh, Danielle Tate, who worked with me, is on the team. Um, Sophie Check came over from Vayner Sports. Just a really awesome team. Built that up. We also built out a great board. And the board is very multidimensional. We've got folks like Kirk Berger, who's general counsel at the MBPA and just built the union for the G League. Um, and has worked with Kessler, who's the lead attorney on a lot of these cases, including House. Um, we have uh, others like Sandy Barber, who for 40 years was an AD at schools like Notre Dame and Tulane and Cal and most recently Penn State. Um, Jim Beheim, um, who obviously is a Hall of Fame coach. And so by building a uh, you know, 20-person board with athletes, coaches, ADs, uh, PA folks from the pro level, agency executives who understand athletes and representation, we really have great counsel behind our efforts. And Sandy and I work on talking to leaders that we're both close with. In most cases, she's closer with them because she's been in the space so long as a peer of theirs. And we talk to a leader a day, you know? And when I say a leader, an AD, running most of the times a Power Five program. Um, we talk to commissioners running Power Five conferences. Um, we were fortunate to, to talk to Charlie Baker, who is by far the most proactive out of anyone we've talked to. Yeah. And I talked to him before he put out the proposal. Yeah. The proposal is just evidence of how proactive he's going to be on this, which I love. Um, and so every conversation, I paint the same vision I just went through. Yeah. Athletes on one side, we organize them in an association. We put them into smaller groups called chapters based on their sport and conference. College athletics leaders are on the other side. They're in a mode right now of preservation. They need to leave that mode and get into what I call a council mode and be able to start talking to the athletes that are in chapters in their conference and negotiating the deal of the future. And if we don't do that before the sand timer runs out, sand timer being the house case and the other cases going on, the courts will force not only an employment model, but a model that might not fully take college athletics and how it works into consideration and blow it up, which may not be the worst thing if you're gonna stay in preservation. But if you're gonna leave preservation, we could do a deal that could be Charlie Baker's asset in DC with Congress. Hey, I've got to deal with the athletes where we're sharing revenue with them. We've standardized medical coverage, mental health. We've standardized transfer rules. We standardized coach tampering with NIL. We standardized these things and we've got this deal signed through athletes.org chapters in these sports and conferences. Now Congress might give you some protection from further litigation. You do the same thing with that deal and go to the courts and try to settle cases. Now you might actually get a settlement. So that rant that I just did for you, we present to leaders when we get on a call with them. 100% of them agree, 100%. I've never had one leader say, no, that's not gonna happen. 100% agree. But none of them will talk about it in a public forum because their general counsel at the conference level or school level won't let them. And once again, I have empathy for that, right? I said it earlier. They're, they're worried that if they say the wrong thing publicly, they could get sued or they could get drawn into a current lawsuit as a witness. Makes sense, understand, but that fear of liability is why the NCAA didn't set rules for NIL and why we're in the current situation we're in with NIL, which we haven't even talked about yeah. yet. So um, 
Yeah, they, they all agree. Yeah. Well, it, it ties into all this, right? It's just the state of NIL and the state of college football. You know, I, I've seen a lot of it with buddies of mine, with guys that are playing right now, but you've seen it even closer than I have. What is really going on with NIL right now? I mean, from, I've always said that like, there's really two types of NIL. There's like real NIL, which is the brand deals and the quarterback doing the deal with the car dealership and the trading card deal. And then there's like the collective NIL, which is just paying the players through raising money for, from donors. What are you seeing happen right now with NIL and you know, what, what's wrong with it? So NIL is 80% dollars from collectives going to athletes disguised as NIL deals for um, value exchanges that would justify in most cases, but not always. But 80% is, is collectives paying athletes and it's mostly football players, some basketball, some women's basketball. 20% is legitimate brand deals where Dunkin' Donuts is picking 20 athletes to post on social and promote Dunkin' Christmas, yeah. okay? Um, so that's NIL. And the 80% I referred to with collectives is revenue sharing as a workaround. Mm -hmm. Since the schools aren't sharing revenue from the gross revenue the athletes help produce, which comes from ticket sales and broadcast media money, et cetera, um, collectives are funded by donors who get no ROI, none. And those donors put money into a collective that some people call it money laundering, Others call it cleaning money, whatever you want to call it. Donors are putting money into an entity that's associated with the school. The entity then does NIL deals that are basically a salary promised to the athlete. And sometimes the athlete's actually showing up at a dinner as an appearance to justify the fee. Other times, I don't know that they're doing much. Um, regardless, it's revenue sharing as a workaround because the school isn't sharing revenue itself. And it's unsustainable because the donor gets 0% ROI and the school gets 100% of the ROI. Because if you get the players with the donor's money through a collective doing an NIL deal, the school can win and produce more value via attendance and ticket sales all the way through the media deals that they're now going and chasing and realigning for. That's NIL. And you know, there's a lot of sub stories to that. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of rules from the NCAA with NIL, but one of the rules is very clear. You can't induce a recruit with an NIL deal. Very clear. A recruit could come from the portal or high school. Those are both recruits or prospective athletes. And so not only can a coach not talk about an NIL deal to induce a recruit, but even the collective or business can't really create a deal that's contingent upon you going to a school. But we all know, we all know, that not only are collectives going to athletes when they're in the portal, and sometimes we know about a story here in Birmingham where an athlete quarterback at UAB wasn't even in the portal. And somebody went to him and said, hey, you wanna to come to our school, right? And so whether it's a portal athlete, an athlete out of the portal that's playing college ball, or a high school athlete, you're not supposed to do any NIL deals with them until they sign. And so instead, we have not only collectives, but coaches. Coaches are promising deals to athletes because it's becoming a centerpiece of the conversation. There's no transparency. So you don't even know if the athlete says, I need this and I'm worth this and this school offered me this, if it's true or not. But if you really want the athlete, you'll figure out how to pay them that amount. And I'm all 
for the athletes getting paid this way and any way. Yeah. I love it. But what I don't like are two things, okay? The first thing I don't like is, for the athlete, number one, they might never get paid. You can promise them whatever you want. I I know for a fact more than half of the promises coaches are illegally making because it's an inducement to an athlete to come to their school. They don't even have the money yet. They're just seeing if they can get the athlete. Then they're going to go back and go to the donors and say, hey, can we get the money? Or I've even heard of banks funding it with loans, right? So, So number one, the concern I have for the athlete is, are you going to get the money? Yeah. Okay, And whether they don't have it, whether you go there and don't play as well or get hurt, is there a chance they renege on that deal? We all know about Jaden Rashada. That's the most famous story. We kind of know if you read between the lines about Michigan State, once Mel Tucker got in trouble, their collective reneged on deals with those players. There's a lot of other activity like that happening. So that's my first concern for athletes. My second concern for the athletes is, yeah, you're getting 300 grand, but what if you're actually worth $3 million? And if a collectively bargained deal between your school conference and the NCAA occurred, what if you were getting more than you're getting because that's what's fair? And so those two things make this feel like, in some cases, hush money for athletes. And it's a workaround and a Band-Aid to revenue sharing, which would solve all the pain that the coaches are going through and would legitimize this more for the athletes. Uh, I was listening to uh, Pat Kraft, the Penn State AD, talk yesterday. I don't know if you saw this. He said that uh, at his press conference, said that recently he was on a trip with Coach Franklin like last week and got an email from an agent who was shopping players around that weren't in the portal asking Pat Kraft and Franklin if they were interested. And actually one of the players was currently on the roster at Penn State. The agent made a mistake and sent it to Penn State. <laughs> and uh, wasn't in the portal. And obviously like, you know. He wasn't even in the portal. I wasn't even in the portal on the Penn State roster. So what, what is, you talked about Rashad at Michigan State. What's one, you don't need to use names or anything, but like what's a, another crazy story that I'm sure you've heard about that's happening in college athletics right now that just proves even more that we need revenue sharing? Well, I know, I know of an athlete who, uh, wanted to stay at the school they were at, had one year left, loved his professors, loved his teammates, loved the new coaching staff that had come in, um, loved the place he lived, um, you name it. Really was just ready to finish strong at at the school he was at and uh, probably won't play at the pro level. And a school in a different conference came in and offered him an amount that the school he was at just couldn't even come close to. And it was more money than he'll probably ever make in his career, um, at least playing sports. And, uh, and so his parents really pushed him to take the deal. And he took the deal, he left crying, he left feeling like he was leaving all of his friends, his teammates, his girlfriend, his place that he loved to live at, his professors, but it was his chance to make more money playing this sport than he'll ever, probably ever make, so he did it. And then the place he went, the climate changed dramatically because of a coach situation and because of some other athletes not showing up and most of the deal he was offered is not being paid. And that's happening widespread. And so, you know, what we have to realize is there needs to be incentivization and motivation for the leaders in college sports, whether it's presidents or commissioners or ADs, to want to work on this. One motivational piece is the sand timer I keep referring to, which are these court cases like House versus the NCAA, Johnson versus NCAA, National Labor Relations Board versus USC, UCLA, the Pac-12, and the NCAA. Um, 
to give folks a picture of the magnitude of the House case, Judge Wilkin ruled that the three core damages classes are men's and women's basketball and football, of which there's as much as $4.2 billion in damages for those athletes not being compensated for their name, image, and likeness being a part of media broadcasts, okay? Um, so that's the magnitude of this. That would break the NCAA, 4.2 billion. That's just for the NCAA. So, and it will also set a precedent for the future and force a new model that a lot of these leaders say they don't want, which is employment. So that's the sand timer I keep referring to. I just wanted to define it. And it's running out. That case will be heard. Um, and in January 2025, it'll really heat up. And you know, I could see a world where by the 25, 26 year, or at the latest by the 26, 27 academic year, um, employment is forced upon college athletics if they don't figure out another route to share revenue with athletes and standardize these transformation category issues like medical coverage and others, okay? So that's really important context. Now let's go into um, what I was about to get to, which is incentivization. As we know, the majority of the value in college sports, the $19 billion of annual revenue that, that happens, the majority of the value is happening at the top you know, 60 schools. Yeah. And it's coming from the top few revenue producing sports, which football is the main one. We know that, like that's objective data. It's not subjective data, like picking a side or picking a sport or picking a school. There already are haves and have nots. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm worried about NIL. Nick Saban said it down the street from here uh, two years ago when he went at Dion and Jimbo and he said, I'm worried about NIL because, because it's gonna create a, a, a bigger divide between the haves and have nots. There already is a big divide between the haves and have nots. But he was, he was right in complaining about the lack of transparency and structure. And like him, Harbaugh and Kelly and others are saying, we should just figure out how to collectively bargain with the athletes, right? But there already is a divide. Most of the 19 billion comes from 60 schools, comes from football, men's and women's basketball, March Madness, right? Like that's the reality of this. And you gotta start asking yourselves, if those schools already have the donor and fan network to fund this interim world we're in called NIL, where collectives buy athletes with NIL deals, are they really motivated to figure out revenue sharing anytime soon when it only separates those schools more from the rest? And then within those top 60 schools are the top 15 really incentivized to figure this out now when it's only separating themselves more from the rest because now they're getting even more great players to go to their league or their schools in this current climate, which is only creating more value for their next media deal that they'll negotiate and be locked in no matter what happens with the new model, which gives them more money to afford the new model. And so is there incentivization to figure this out? And when you heard Chip Kelly talk about his prototype, which I have some agreement with and some disagreement with, and that's for any prototype, you know, like they're all, that got good and bad things to them, but he said one league and basically said one media deal, which means you have to break down the conference media deals. Yeah. Are the top two conferences, Big Ten, SEC, can even be incentivized to do that? No. So that's another whole issue in this is, is there motivation to figure it out before the sand timer runs out? Yeah. Well, uh, the whole other part of this is what happens with the NCAA and does college football break off from, I mean, there's so many different solutions, like what, what you just referenced with Chip Kelly's solution. I forget exactly what, he, what his proposal was, but you know, where do you see, when we look at college football in five years, 
What do you think it'll look like? Today's episode is brought to you by Ekron Athletics. Listen, you guys know I was an injury-prone player during my playing career. Felt like I was hurt having surgery every other season. Looking back on it, I wasn't recovering the right way. So now in my post-playing career, I've made it a mission to figure out how to recover best. And that's when I found Ekron Athletics. Their B37S percussion massage gun, this thing right here, has changed the way I recover after big workouts. I wish I had this thing when I was playing. It was named the best overall massage gun by GQ, Sports Illustrator, and other trusted publications. I'm telling you, every player and athlete out there should be using this thing to recover after workouts and games and to get loose before games and practices. And even if you're not playing sports and using it before the gym and after the gym, I use it when I'm sitting at home watching college football every Saturday. When I mean, this thing is beautiful, I love it. I take it with me everywhere I go, even on the road when I travel. Oh, and the B37S massage gun is not just about a quick fix. It's got a long battery life and it comes with a lifetime warranty guaranteeing this thing lasts much longer than my football career did. Whether you're a current athlete a former athlete or just an everyday person trying to stay in shape, you need to try the B37S percussion gun from Ekron Athletics. Go to EkronAthletics.com today and start recovering faster and moving easier. That's Ekron Athletics and use promo code NEXTUP for 25% off your purchase. That's E-K-R-I-N Athletics.com with promo code NEXTUP for 25% off your purchase. When we look at college football in five years, what do you think it'll look like? I think college football will see the football programs, at least at the, in the top echelon, uh, separate from the college athletics department. Um, I think that the top teams that do that will fund um, what will be a separate entity that's a for-profit entity um, with uh, some private equity. I think the school will still own the majority of the team, but I think that the, um, the, the private equity will come in and, and own the other piece of the team and, and help give it structure and run more like a professional team than it runs today. Um, I think that the players for those teams will be employees and will have to unionize um, if they're playing in that top echelon of college football for those for-profit teams that have been funded by private equity. Um, they will be part of a league that's gonna produce, I would say three to $4 million more a year in media revenue. Because uh, if you pick your favorite games from this year in college football, whether it's you know, Alabama, LSU, Alabama, Georgia, uh, Notre Dame, Ohio State, um, Ohio State, Michigan, those are the few games that got towards 10 million viewers. Ohio State, Michigan, Ohio, almost 20 million viewers. But the rest of the games averaged a few million at best. And they don't even touch the NFL in viewership. The highest viewed college game every weekend is less than the lowest viewed NFL game every weekend. The NFL has $14 billion in its annual media deal. Why? Single digit spreads, parody, and great, great football all the time. We had weekends this year in college football where no ranked teams were even playing each other, right? And so if you separate these top schools football programs from the school into a for-profit entity, you fund some of it with private equity, you get the players to be employees and give them in a union to collectively bargain an agreement where they get paid their share and have the right standards and benefits, um, you will produce a lot more money annually. And what has to happen is that money has to be allocated to not only pay the players their share and pay payroll for the coaches and staff, but you have to go back to the school who still owns the majority of that team and make sure they're funded for Title IX that the Olympic sports are still funded, and then you have to have a trickle down downstream because it's still important that you know Tulsa and Coastal Carolina are playing football and that they're able to survive in this new era. And so, like, 
I see that is, is, is inevitable for college football in the next five years. The, the other part of this whole thing that I've always thought was crazy is that the, the people that are in charge of governing college football right now are conference commissioners, right? Mm -hmm. And the conference, uh, conference commissioner, Greg Sankey at the SEC, is also responsible for track and field and soccer and lacrosse and all these other sports that don't generate revenue. And I've always just thought that that was what, like, obviously we don't have the best interests of just football, the most, the biggest revenue generating sport at heart because the people in charge have to focus on so many other things. So do you think that at some point there should be one person, like the NFL has the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, who is just in charge of football and, and has football's best interests at heart? I do. I think that person has to be incredibly innovative yeah. and probably shouldn't be a product of college athletics. Yeah. And so I think the current, most of the current commissioners are a product of college athletics. Brett Yormark isn't. Um, Petitia isn't either. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm just making a point here. I'm not saying that Petitia and Yormark would be better than Sankey or Phillips because I don't know that any of them, just because they're currently running a league, as you said, with each school having 15 to 30 sports, um, it's different yeah. than a college football league. And so um, you asked earlier, what's the future of the NCAA? Yeah. And you know, the only way the NCAA survives is if it can do two things, govern and run championships, because that's all it does. It's a governance and events organization. They don't run the national championship for football anymore. Yeah. March Madness is its most valuable property. Yeah. They can't set any rules because they can't get protection from Congress. So for the NCAA to go into the new frontier, they're gonna to have to probably figure out whether or not they can even be associated with college football anymore, which it's looking more and more like they won't. And then they also have to figure out how can they get a deal done with the athletes to get the protection from Congress they need to be a governance organization again. And if they can't figure that out before they owe billions in these court cases, it's gonna to be tough for them to survive. At that point, it goes down to these conferences, which are already doing some things on their own island. Media deals have been happening at the conference level only for a while, even though they also share in the CFP and NCAA March Madness media deals, the biggest media check that the schools get for the bigger conferences and the power four now come from the conference media deal. So conferences already been doing that on their own. That's why they were called the autonomous five instead of the power five years ago because they're already running a little bit on their own, but the NCAA has been responsible to govern and to also create ineligibility for a coach or for an athlete when they violate a rule and they can't do that as much. So as that relationship changes, the governance will be pushed down to the conferences and the conferences are gonna to have to get set up for that and they may be liable to antitrust risks once they start doing that. So it creates another issue. If you just separate football and maybe men's and women's basketball in certain ways as well, at least for the March Madness money to be able to go to the men's and women's basketball athletes since they help produce it. And you start to realize that those sports create all the revenue that then funds the other sports. And it doesn't mean that there's not huge NIL deals for women's gymnasts. And it doesn't mean that women's softball and women's volleyball aren't trending up with media viewership and couldn't become revenue producing sports down the line because they could. But the reality is right now, the money comes from those places. Baseball is another one that's trending up. It could grow and, and maybe be, be revenue producing. But right now, those sports, men's and women's basketball and football, are producing the money to pay for the other sports, which is why all the leaders are saying, we can't pay the athletes because if yeah. we do that, we won't be able to keep the other sports. Yeah. 
but nobody is remembering that Jimbo Fisher is getting paid $70 million to not coach at all. While we hire another coach that has incentives that get him up to close to eight figures a year at the same time. Or that Auburn down the street has three coaches on payroll, one who's the current coach, Hugh Freeze, but Gus Melzahn's double dipping while he's at UCF still getting his buyout, and Brian Harson is getting paid as well. Nobody's talking. That's how we got here. That's how we got to the portal. Coaches saying to their team, you see speeches, I'm not leaving. I'm staying. I know you heard the rumors. I'm staying. Next morning, they leave. Why can't players do it? Now you have the portal. And then we had coaches taking bigger and bigger salaries, getting bigger and bigger buyouts. And now athletes have NIL, but NIL doesn't answer that. So, like, once again, I'm going to say it really simply. We, athletes.org, did not create this. We are simply trying to solve it. We're excited to be a part of the solution. And one side of the solution is organizing the athletes for the new deal. The other side of the solution is college athletics leaders leaving the preservation mode and getting proactive and working on that new deal. Speaking to the unsustainable part of it, I think it's important for people who don't understand NIL so much to understand. From what you've seen, what is a collective NIL budget like at a top 10 college football program in the country? Let's just say an SEC top school. Yeah, like top 10, you got to have more than $10 million dollars. Um, you know, let's just keep it simple. Like top 10, you're going to be more than $10 million. Um, you know, next 20, you're going to be in the five to $10 million range. Um, then you get past that and you get to the smaller schools in the big leagues and you know, 3 million is where they're at. And that kind of needs to be the same for the top G five schools who need to be two to 3 million. And, and then it just goes down from there. And I'm talking all football. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what it is. But you know, the other side of this is, what I'm sharing with you is from my experience being the, the data house, the system of record with the software company I built an influencer that Teamworks now runs and owns and seeing the breakdown of data that we shared publicly. Um, but that's what was reported. That's what was paid on with taxes. You've got to ask yourself, how much NIL is happening and it's not name, image and likeness it's now it's legal. Yeah. A lot of people know that's really what NIL has become to, has come to stand for. Yeah. Now it's legal. Mm-hmm. And so with those deals, I don't know that all of them are even contracted. Yeah. If they are contracted, I don't know that they're all reported yeah. to the IRS. And so just like when you walk around New York City, as I do every month when I go up for my meetings, I walk as much as I can, get some good exercise, and I smell marijuana, I smell weed mm-hmm. everywhere when I'm walking the streets in New York. And I always ask myself, how many people that are smoking weed right now bought it at a dispensary and paid taxes on it? How many bought it under the table down the street, but they just feel good about smoking it out in the open now because, hey, now it's legal. That's NIL. And there's a whole segment there. And so now you got another issue for athletes because even if they're doing a contract where they feel good about getting paid what they've been promised, Mm -hmm. if they're not paying taxes on it, you know, and so... There's just so many concerns about us letting this continue and not standardizing it better. Yeah. And, and that's just another thing that plays into yeah. it. And, and there's no parity at all in, in the college. I, I was talking to Coach Dilfer yesterday, and I said, I made a comment. I said, uh, you know, you have to compete with these Power 5 teams in the portal. And he said, Adam, 
we don't compete with them. Like, there's no competing, right? They, they have an $8 million budget, ours is half a million a year. And, and just that there's no way to possibly compete, and then you can poach them with the tampering, which we haven't really talked about, the tampering that goes on in the portal. Yeah. Coaches just calling recruits, I mean, we talked a little bit, but coaches calling recruits and offering money without them even being in, and it just hurts these group of five programs so much. Yeah, so, you know, here, there's, there's two sides to, to the parity thing. There's more parity than we've had since, you know, probably – um, the early 2000s when it comes to schools across different conferences, um, getting players, five stars, kind of spreading out team by team. We're still only talking about parity amongst the top 30, which is what that new league I mentioned that will exist in five years will have, which everybody wants to see because it makes the games better. Yeah. And, uh, and so that is great. Dan Wetzel um, has done a great job at Yahoo Sports about showcasing the way that NIL is helping create more parity. And I agree with him 110%. And I said it earlier, I'll say it again, I love the players getting paid. I just think it's a fraction of what they're worth. And I think they're not protected from getting reneged on and screwed. Um, the other side of this is um, we've lost the story of, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna quote Jeff Scott, uh, who was the coach at South Florida and, and uh, was before that at Clemson, a great guy. I've talked to him for an hour one time about all this just randomly. And we've lost the story of the young man who shows up on campus as a freshman expecting to play. And um, him and coach just don't see eye to eye and coach doesn't play him at all. And he calls his mom and says, mom, I don't, I don't want to stay here. I hate it here. I'm homesick. I'm not playing. He calls his coach from high school. Coach, I, I just don't want to be here. And his coach says, stick it out. You're going to learn from this. Stick it out. And he sticks it out. And the next year he buys into what the coach wanted him to do. And he gets a little bit of reps and proves he can handle being in the moment in front of 90,000 people. And then the next year, spring football, he crushes it. He earns a starting spot. His junior year, he's starting. His senior year, he goes all conference. And he's sitting up at the banquet, crying like a baby, saying, I was going to quit. We've lost that, okay? Once again, if we collectively bargain all these categories from transparency to tampering to the amount of times you can transfer, to what a commitment looks like, yeah. that story could come back and athletes could get paid. But instead, we've lost it. And it's not the athlete's fault that we've lost it. It's because of the greed of coach salaries, the greed of coach severance, the greed of coaches to chase their ambition for a bigger deal at a bigger school instead of developing young men, yeah. all that. And I'm quoting coaches. So if a coach is watching and they're getting pissed right now, I'm quoting your colleagues. This is stuff coaches tell me. This is stuff Trent Dilfer talks about. We lost our ambition decades ago as coaches and we forgot our purpose for existence. We're here to develop young men. If we do it at a high level, we can get paid for it, but we're here to develop young men. We lost that and some of our players end up losing that story of that kid who becomes a man and perseveres. And, and so I just think that you know, not only is parity tough for the smaller schools, but you've also got to find those stories. Again, there's some, yeah. pure, there's some pure situations here where a Jacob Zeno has had a great year at UAB and they've had a record-setting season in Trent Dilfer's first year, but they only won four games and underachieved on their goal. They lost some tough ones late to Tulane and UTSA. And the vision is, is they're, gonna, they're gonna double that next year, if not win double digits. And they're bought in as an offense, and the defense is going to get better and fix some of the issues, and next year is going to be great. And Zeno gets offered money, not even being in the portal from another school, and doesn't turn it down because UAB matches the money. 
but turns it down because you know what? He's committed to his teammates. He's committed to Coach Dilfer. And they're still going to get him some NIL money in a legal way because he's not even being induced with that deal. But he's going to stay more importantly because he wants to finish the story. And that's more of what you got to sell in the group of five. Or even, even small, smaller, like lower performing division one power five, you've got to sell that story because you're not going to compete with money. What, what's, uh, what's next for athletes.org? Like what, what does the next year look like to get it to the point you want it to be? Yeah, so you know, I gave you a little bit of the timeline. You got these, these, these court cases. I said the sand timer is kind of a, a 24-month sand timer. It's, it's running out. We want to be in a position where we are organized by the time that happens. And so what that looks like is we have to build out our chapters in the key revenue-producing sports, the three sports that Judge Wilkin noted in the House case, men's basketball, women's basketball, football, and we need to do it in the key conferences. So in men's and women's basketball, it's the power six. So it's basically Big East plus Pac-12, Big 12, SEC, ACC, Big 10. In football, it's power four because we won't start doing that till later this year after the Pac-12 folds. So it'll be Big, Big 10, Big 12, uh, SEC, ACC. And so those, those 16 chapters are our focus this year. And when we say we want them built out, we want more than 50% of the athletes who play that sport in that conference signed up for athletes.org membership. It's free. Um, so there's really no barrier to entry except you gotta play that sport in that conference. And we want you to understand what we're doing. We want you to understand what's happening in college sports. We want you to understand how we're gonna help you maximize your income through bringing you group licensing opportunities today in the form of a trading card deal or a product deal, and tomorrow in the form of revenue sharing with your school or the media deal from your conference. We want you to understand how we're gonna amplify your voice today by having you fill out a poll so we can show what you think about these key issues, but tomorrow by having some of the key athletes on each team in the conference chapter talk to the media about these key issues or talk to the conference leadership. And we want you to understand how we're gonna support your key decisions in the form of today, giving you pro bono lawyers or accountants to help you make key decisions, but also tomorrow, being able to look at our collective or agent registry and make a decision on who you're gonna work with based on whether or not they're in there. And so um, we want more than 50% of the athletes in these 16 chapters across football, men's and women's basketball to be signed up by the end of 2024. And um, we're focused on men's and women's basketball right now, leading up to March Madness because we're doing a lot of polling for these athletes that we're gonna to release to the media during March Madness about what these players playing in March Madness from these six conferences in these respective schools think about revenue sharing, think about Charlie Baker's proposal, think about medical coverage post-grad, et cetera. We're gonna showcase, what do, they, what do ACC athletes think about SMU, Cal, and Stanford coming into their conference? Like We're gonna have that data ready for March Madness, but also we have some exciting group licensing deals that we will roll out during March Madness for those athletes that are in Athletes.org membership during March Madness. Because essentially, as I said earlier, we're just like the NFLPA and NFL Players Inc. or the MBPA and Think 450. We have one side that is focused on supporting our athletes with benefits and advocating for them, whether it's collective bargaining or a deal that needs to be negotiated with their conference or the NCAA. But we've got another side, like NFL Players Inc., for us it's Athletes Inc., that's pushing hard yeah. to make sure we can drive deal flow today through group licensing for college athletes because group licensing should be a lot bigger in college sports, but it's hard. It's hard for one team to do what they did crushing group licensing with the NFLPA and the MLBPA 
at the college level because athletes aren't organized. Yeah. And I think what's exciting is just four months in, we've started launching these men's and women's basketball chapters I mentioned across these power six conferences leading up to March Madness. And we started with the ACC and we did the ACC men's basketball chapter. We did the ACC women's basketball chapter. We had athletes like Armando Baycott and RJ Davis from North Carolina, Jeremy Roach from Duke, Deja Kelly from North Carolina women's basketball be a part of a, a content series we started. You can find it, it's called Seat at the Table, talking about all this stuff we talked about today, but from their perspective. And uh, more than a third of the athletes who play ACC men's or women's basketball are now signed up because we have a player rep on every ACC team. We call him an AO captain. And he or she is helping sign up their teammates. And we're now doing it in the Big East. We've already got representation from most of the Big East teams with a player rep, an AO captain, that's signing up his or her teammates. And we'll move on to the Big 10, the Big 12, SEC, uh, SEC Pac-12, uh, leading up to March Madness. But we are off and running four months in, and that's really exciting for us. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what's the goal sign-up-wise for you know, the next few months? I think you know, it would be great to be the same place we are with the ACC in every league. Yeah. But I think, you know, we're always gonna set the bar high. I wanna be at 50%. Yeah. You know, there's, there's 470 or so ACC men's and women's basketball players. We want 250 of them signed up. And we wanna do that in each league. And when you think about it, that's only 1,250, uh, well, with the Big East, it's 1,500 athletes, yeah. you know? And 1,500 out of 3,000 power six men's and women's basketball players is a strong start. And it gives us inventory to sell group licensing into yeah. for these athletes to actually get paid during March Madness. Yeah. Uh, I want to wrap up my last few questions with yeah. some personal questions. Your, your journey, your story of the success you've had, exited multiple businesses, now building in the, the middle and the forefront of this new, college, this new era of college athletics. I think it's inspiring for a lot. There's so many kids that want to be entrepreneurs now, right? Grow up wanting to be sports entrepreneurs and also the athletes, right? Who you have great perspective for. So first, during your, your journey uh, as an entrepreneur, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think that when you're young, and especially if you were a college athlete, you've had some success early in life, just on the field, you get out and you're like, I wanna be successful as a businessman or a businesswoman. And the reality is, is it just takes a lot of time. Yeah. You know, uh, I am a uh, 18 year overnight success. <laughs> and so, you know, I started my first business during my senior year in 2005 um, in college. And uh, I've been working at it ever since. And I've made a lot of mistakes. And you know, another lesson could be just fail fast and keep yeah. taking risks and learning from your mistakes because that's where you get the most learnings from. But uh, you just can't try to be on the cover of Fast Company Magazine. <laughs> you really want to be on the cover of Slow Company. <laughs> and those are the best entrepreneurs, the ones who just grind and build. You might strike gold and build something really fast at a young age. And then you got to figure out how to stay relevant. How many entrepreneurs do I know who in their 20s crushed it, became millionaires, but their next three ventures haven't been as good, and some of them are running out of money. Yeah. It's a long game, it's yeah. a long game, be patient. Yeah. Um, during that time, during that journey, I talk a lot on this about overcoming adversity, and just I had adversity in my career, and yeah. everyone's faced it, right? I love your story, you've, you've a, personified it. Appreciate it, man, thank you. Well, what's a time when you look back on your, on your journey, your whole life, where you faced the biggest moment of adversity, and how'd you overcome it? You know, I've had a few, a few stories uh, at a young age that really hit me. When I was three, my mom got kidney disease, lost her kidneys, was on her deathbed. Her and my dad were separated. It looked like they were going to get a divorce. Um, and it was this crazy moment in time where 
um, you know, by the grace of God, um, they, they ended up saving their marriage. Uh, they started going to the same church and their faith really got them through a tough time. So I got to grow up with both of my parents if that didn't happen. But also my mom, um, from when I was three and she got kidney disease all the way to me being 30, you know, she fought it for 27 years. And for 27 years, she had three different kidney transplants. She had cancer, ovarian cancer, had chemo. She was on dialysis most of the time, three days a week. Picture of perfect health. It was a secret. Nobody could know she was sick because she was a personal trainer. And on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, she was in the gym, pouring into other people, training them, transforming their lives with fitness and nutrition. On Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, she was in the hospital doing dialysis. And I watched her live that out for 27 years. And while it was tough to lose her when I was 30, if my parents didn't stay together and my mom didn't fight the way she fought, I'd be a complete, completely different person. And the other one is, you see the scar. You know, when I was 12, I was playing baseball and I was playing shortstop. I went to catch a pop flies, Willie Mays style in shallow center. You know, I turned around, started running towards the center field wall to catch the ball over my head. Me and the center fielder hit head on head. And uh, he was fine because he was running full speed. I was kind of drifting to catch the ball. My whole forehead collapsed, 38 pieces, was on the ground, skull depressed, skin sunken in, bleeding out of my eyes, mouth, ears, nose. They take the fence down, drive the ambulance on the field, take me to the hospital. And uh, they cut from ear to ear. They took my face off and they reconstructed my forehead with titanium alloy. And uh, you know, I was supposed to have epilepsy, I never did. Um, I was supposed to have a lot of uh, repercussions. This, this is definitely why I am the way I am. You know, people are always like, oh, that's why you're so hard at it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, listen, like, if, if that doesn't happen, if I don't go through it, I went through with my mom. And of course, I kept playing sports. I couldn't play football because of the injury, but I played basketball and baseball throughout high school at Christian Brothers Academy. Um, but if they, those things don't happen, I don't have the guts to come down to Alabama. You know, and, and for some listening, you may be like, what's so good about coming to Alabama? That changed my life. It's where I met my wife. It's where I built my family. This is where I found my passion as an entrepreneur. This is where I got perspective that a lot of people watching don't have because you've only been to New York or LA and there's a whole other part of the country that I've seen because yeah. I came down here. It's, uh, it's important for young people to have confidence in themselves. And those stories of adversity of, are how I got that. And your story of what you went through at Penn State and going to UMass and thinking you wanna be a coach and then becoming really a media personality, all is what becomes your fuel in what you're now building. Yeah. And, and that's powerful. No doubt. And, I, and I'm sure that the, the two stories you just told with your mom and with your injury is what kind of gives you the perseverance or the confidence, the determination to take on this issue that you're taking on. Because it's not a small issue. And there's a lot of roadblocks. And there's a lot of people who don't want you to take it on, right? And a lot of big institutions who are going to be, who are against it. I, absolutely. And all I would say to them is, you know, I just did a video the other day. I was sitting over here in the office and I know Adelaide right now is in the room watching us doing some behind the scenes stuff. And she's, she helps me with my personal social. Yeah. If, if you guys want to follow me, it's Jim Caval. And I always try to share like stuff like we're talking about more, more about my weaknesses and, you know, trials and tribulations, but there's this scene, you know, in the last dance at the end, everybody loves it. Right. Where, you know, they talk about how hard it was to play with Michael and Michael talks about the fact that he wasn't willing to do anything that, um, or he was willing to do anything he asked anyone else on his team to do. And he just wanted to win. And he didn't care if people liked him. He wanted to win, you know, and they show the shot of him, um, 
where he, he's looking at one of his teammates and he's like, you know, and then it goes back to him and he says, um, you know, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. But that's how I played and that's why we won. And I think when I watch that scene, I think something different every time. But I have this partner, Brandon Copeland, who is just as tenacious as I am. He's more talented at a younger age. He's got a bigger network. He went to Penn. He's got everything you want at his age to be so successful as a leader. And God brought him to me. And we're in this fight. And it's not lonely as I thought going through this. It's not as hard as I thought. And so I would say to the leaders out there, like, we will not stop because this is going to help not just you figure this out. This is going to help the industry move forward because a new deal has to be done and it will take people who understand athletics, but also are entrepreneurial and are going to execute to figure it out. It does not take a room of people throwing around ideas for their, you know, for their benefit. We have to come together. We can do a deal that's better than we have today. It's a win-win-win. But the only way to do it is to group up the athletes and get the college athletics leaders to put that new deal together. Uh, A big part of my following is aspiring athletes, college athletes. uh, So they'll see this. What's a piece of advice you would give um, a college athlete entering college or in college right now navigating this crazy wild, wild west of of uh, NIL and transfer portal and everything? Yeah, it's a great question for, for them and their parents, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of great things about what's happening right now. You can, you know, you can transfer very easily and if, if you end up in the wrong situation, you can go somewhere else. Um, you can obviously do an NIL deal. I think you should still look at the basics that existed before all this came about. Um, you know, We'll start with the transfer portal. If you're thinking of transferring, just realize that you know, the, the, the transfer portal hype is really about the top 10% of players that already performed well. Yeah. It's not about the 90% that didn't play and are just trying to go somewhere else. Doesn't mean if you're a part of the 90% and you haven't played yet and you might have been a higher um, ranked uh, player in high school and, and now your, your stock's a little lower. Doesn't mean you can't transfer and have a good experience, but the portal's really about the top players and. There are a lot of players who've worn three or four uniforms since this portal stuff changed, and they've had to realize the common denominator was them. It wasn't their coach's fault. It was them. And I'm saying that because I love you as an athlete. Like, I I want you to realize, like, sometimes it's worth sticking it out. Um, Not always, but sometimes. And so, so that's one thing about if you're thinking about going to the portal. Another thing, if you think about going to the portal, whether it's before you went in the portal or while you're in it, you're really not supposed to be offered an NIL deal while you're in the portal. So why does that matter to you if you're getting paid one way or another? Well, if the coach is breaking the rule and at some point these rules are going to be governed, do you really want that on your hands? Or would you rather deal with a coach who's following the rules, who might be able to compliantly say you could make money with NIL but isn't gonna get you to sign a deal before you sign your NLI? Because if you sign NIL before you sign NLI, you're breaking the rules and you're just as much a part of it as they are. You probably won't get in the same amount of trouble as they'll get in, but you know, you're still breaking the rules. And so here's what a good pitch sounds like from a coach. Hey, want you to come here because of this team, the offense we run, how you fit into it. Here's what I see in you. Here's why you're going to do well. 
we've got these coaches, we think you're gonna love them, you end up liking them, you connect with the coaches, you like the city it's in, you like the school, it's got your major, all those things that used to be sold, the nutrition room, the locker room, they got a barber seat in the locker room, all that stuff, is, it should be first. And then the coach says, oh yeah, NIL? Well, guys that have played to the degree I think you could play here, if you work hard and you get on the field, are making about this range in their NIL deals. And once you get here, we've got a collective you can talk to, we've got some other people that can help you find what's possible. That's how it should sound. It's gotten way out of that, and I understand why, for the sake of the athletes, it's gotten way out of that, but we've gotta get it back there. The only way to get it back there is if there's tangible objective data of what you can make from revenue sharing by playing at this school over four years, which would also create commitment from the athlete to not keep going into the portal, which would also create transparency with coaches when anything around money comes up, which would also govern tampering by coaches from stealing players from each other. That's where we gotta get to. So athletes understand all this stuff and what it should sound like versus what it might and understand the reality of you might not play even when you transfer because you're missing out on a magical but tough experience called perseverance yeah. that could actually produce more fruit in some cases where you should stick it out. Yeah, I love it. So true. So true. Uh, well, my last question for, question for you is uh, in 20 years, people talk about Jim Cavall. What do you want to say? Man, I want to... I, big question. I, no, <laughs> it, it's, it's a great question, and I hope it's not just 20 years. I hope it's 200 years. I hope it's 2,000 years. Um, you know, a lot of people look at legacy as you know, your name on something. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, the human side of me felt that for a while. Um, I had the chance to get a weight room built at my alma mater, Christian Brothers Academy, uh, for the football team. And it's the Caval Strength and Conditioning Facility. That's one of the things I did after I sold Influencer. And it was a great experience. And they just won their third state championship in New York State. And they thanked me, the principal called me up and said, your weight room was a huge part of it. The guys are in there all the time. But whenever I go in the weight room, I look at it, and I remember the weight room that was there before that we rebuilt and how it kind of looked dingy to me. It was the one I worked out at when I was in high school there. And I, I look at it, I'm like, you know, someday, as great as this weight room is, it's gonna be dingy and it's gonna need to be rebuilt or it's gonna you know, be destroyed in a demolition or whatever. It's not gonna last forever. But what does last forever is really using your relationships to really pour into people and bless other people. And there's all levels of it. Right? There's blessing people on a daily basis by just figuring out ways you can help friends um, and being there to help them make a connection for them, invest in a, in, a, in a certain situation, not just with money, but with expertise, whatever it is. But there's also a lot of people in need. I've traveled to places like Cambodia. I've seen people living in villages with no electricity that have no clean water, and we brought that to them. And that will be there, that well will be there for a long time, if not forever, right? Bringing them clean water. And so, I think what I want people to say is, you know, Jim, you know, he was successful in business and God blessed him, but he used all of his blessings for him and his family to bless other people. And he lived a life focused on blessing others more than just using it for himself. And he did that because he felt God blessed him. He didn't just get it by chance. He felt like it was all God's and he felt like God wanted him to steward it and use it to bless other people for God's name. That's, that's what I want my life to stand for. And I'm, I'm trying to live like that today. It's not easy, man. Yeah. It's not easy, right? I told you about the Tesla. Mm -hmm. You know, I battle this stuff all the time. Purchases, building a beach house, doing certain things. But you know what? This beach house I just built in Florida, mm -hmm. I'd love to do 
masterminds with coaches and their families down there about how to work through this new era. I'd love to get athletes there to work on their strategy and how they're gonna build their business. It can be a blessing to other people. So if I just have that mindset in everything that I do, I feel like I can leave a real legacy, not just a building in my name. As long as we do the next podcast at the Beach House. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're doing doing the Beach House. Uh, But man, for real, this is an awesome conversation. I think people really enjoy it, whether they're coaches, athletes, uh, just fans of college football and college sports. I think they'll get a ton out of it. And and your story is awesome. We met, I think, 2018 Super Bowl. So it's been fun to... uh, We actually 2020. 2020 It was two months before COVID. That's right. It It was the Mahomes comeback against San Fran. 2020 uh, on a boat in Miami at the Super Bowl. So uh, it's been great to know you through that and been and it's been cool it's been cool to watch you build influencer and now be at the forefront of this new dynamic new changing landscape of college football so i'm excited to, excited for people to hear this and, and appreciate your friendship absolutely man thanks for having me appreciate you coming to birmingham yeah, appreciate it, man.